Hey friends, welcome to episode 295 of The Best Podcast. Hope you're doing well, hope you're taking great care, and I hope that you're making it through this time and finding ways to find silver linings, no matter how challenging the situation may be. Today's episode is going to be a little different. It's going to be a bit of a spin-off slash similar concept to couple episodes I've done in the past, which is sort of a Q&A sort of thing, but this one will be focused on relationships. It's not something I talk about a lot, but it is something I find myself thinking about a great deal and something which is particularly important to me. So here I have six questions in front of me, which I'm going to go through and answer for myself. And These six questions have spun off of a video I watched that a friend sent to me and said, hey, look at this, tell me what sort of thoughts you're getting from this, what your reactions are, etc. So this episode is my answers to the questions that I came up with after watching that and going through that. So first, should people be actively searching for the one? Or should they allow it to happen more, quote-unquote, naturally, without pushing for it? My response to that would be to not intentionally look for it. Because if you do, you can find yourself trying to complete yourself from the outside when that can only be done from the inside. This is something which I consistently come back to and I find a lot of people talking and saying renditions of the opposite of what I just mentioned. They'll be looking for someone and they they want to become complete. They want to find happiness in someone else. They want to fill something inside of themselves. A sort of emptiness or a void or a part that is not yet whole. And when I think through this, I consistently realize and come to the realization of how can one be happy if they themselves and themselves alone are not at peace, are not in equanimity, and are not feeling complete within that singular unit. And finding contentment within who you are and who we are as individuals. And I go on here to say, we want stability and wholeness in our partners. So how can we possess that ourselves if we're looking for someone else to give it to us? It has to be something that comes from us. It has to be our own stability and our own wholeness that is ours and ours alone and not manifested through partnership with someone else. Sure, partnership with someone else can be so positive and so meaningful and it can truly enrich our lives and it can improve it beyond what our capabilities were alone. But in order to be at those places, in order to have that sort of leaps ahead, there has to be a wholeness and stability within oneself. 
Because at that point, the vulnerabilities, the challenges, the personal struggles, the lack of self-acceptance will manifest themselves one way or, or another. And they can perhaps infect the other person with whom you are. And that can be dangerous. That might not just bring you down, but the person you love, the person with whom you are, your companion. And when we take a step back, that is truly the last thing that we want. So how can we prevent that? Well, if we're at peace with ourselves, if we have a stability and wholeness within ourselves as individuals, then finding others and coming across others and building relationships with others will only complement us, will only build something rather than filling holes, filling voids, and filling parts of ourselves which we feel are incomplete. I fully understand that this requires a lot more questioning, a lot more in-depth examination, but I'll leave it here because I think that that sort of gets the general idea across. Second, is the goal of having a family a significant enough goal to sustain a relationship over the very long term? So it is a big part, and it's definitely a good glue to have. And it can certainly sustain the relationship and keep it afloat. But that's not what is going to keep it positive, happy, and full of growth. It seems like there needs to be more for the relationship to be sustainably positive and not just survival. So this is something I have oddly seen a lot in my personal life, not within my singular family unit, but certainly within a lot of the families around me. And I guess I will take back what I originally said and say, yes, I have seen that within my own family as well. Where the family itself and building the family itself is a significant enough glue. But what makes it deeply happy, deeply positive, and always full of growth and learning and a sense of joy and lightness. So it's not just survival, survival, it's that sustainable positivity. And I think that there needs to be something deeper and something more. Something that goes beyond the family. Something that you're building every day. Something that you're cultivating each day. Something that you're constantly working on and building. And for me, when I take a step back and think about what that would be, the unobvious, obvious answer is the relationship itself. The bond. The understanding. Between two people. This ability to work across individuals, to understand each other, to learn, and to understand how to handle various situations together. How to trek through the world with a companion and how to help each other do better than you could on your own. 
while also helping each other become better as individuals. To have a genuine companionship. I think having a family and building a family with someone else can certainly enhance that so much. But the one-on-one nature of that relationship, what you have, what you're building, the tenets that you set for each other, that in itself, I find, is what is more sustainable, what is more positive, and what is not just the way of getting by. What can people do to understand their emotions effectively and prevent themselves from an addiction to emotional stimulation? And I find this to be particularly relevant for men who tend to struggle more to be vulnerable, open, and permissive of their emotions, I guess might be a good word. Tend to also prevent ourselves from having dialogues and to really diving in deeply into those emotions that we experience to make sense of them. But at the same time, men do tend to have this sort of more frequent addiction to emotional stimulation. I mean, who plays more video games? Who tends to have this need to always be stimulated, always have something going on, to get angry, fiery, to have a substantial emotional experience to at least feel something and to feel it with great intensity. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's not just me. Maybe it's true. Maybe it's just a subjective interpretation, but I do find men to be a little more prone to that, to have that sort of addiction to emotional stimulation. But I think at the same time, it is not by much. I think we are all so prone to it, man, woman, or whatever you find yourself to be. We are all so prone, and we all have this capability to fall into this sort of addiction to being emotionally stimulated, whether it be by video games or emotional rushes or television or your phone and social media, exercise, masturbation even. There's so many things that give us that emotional stimulation to which we can so easily become addicted because they all provide those dopamine rushes. I mean, it all works similarly to drugs and to things that stimulate our nervous system and the chemicals in our brain, the dopamine. So to answer the question, what can people do? For me, it would be to meditate would be a great one, to observe the movements of one's own mind and to be able to return to the breath after observing the thoughts that one has and to do this repeatedly and to practice over time, at least for me and for millions around the world really have found that to be an effective tool. Journaling, I think, helps so much. It's sort of a, a real dive-in and interpretation and understanding of what one is feeling and to actually process it in words, to get it out, rather than to try to make sense within the confusing world of the mind, 
which can be so cluttered and disorganized. Next, I would say to actually dive into them, to not ignore them, to not put them off, to not ignore and, and say that they do not exist, but to actually acknowledge them and to try to figure out where they're coming from, what its stem is, how it's affecting you, and what you can do to better process it. But I think that the main part is actually diving in, knowing what they feel like, what they are, and how they're affecting you. I think that that is so critical. And on top of that, I think having friends with whom you're 100% transparent and vulnerable, and consistently check in with them and open up, I think that that is massive. And I think something else which will have a similar effect would be seeing a therapist and following those same principles. You know, having someone with whom you're 100% transparent, vulnerable, with whom you don't judge yourself when you tell them about what's going on inside of you and inside of your mind and your feelings. And to be able to have that consistent sort of splurge of all of that and to say it out loud or to write it or to put it out there and to get some feedback from a rational outside individual and to be able to work through things and sort of figure out what's going on. I think that all of that is, is so important. And I think for relationships, it's so critical as well. If we don't have people or practices in our lives that allow us to make better sense of our emotions and how they affect us and to acknowledge and make sense of the addictions, the different types of emotional stimulation that we have, then we can go down a dark path through which I am sure none of us would like to venture when we take a step outside of the emotional sides of ourselves. Fourth, how can people know if their partner can or will change if they appear to have an addiction to emotional stimulation? And two follow-up questions after that. Should we try to help the other change if they do? And if we do try, where's the line for when to stop trying and to move on? So I think it's tough to answer this simply. We need to admit to it and autonomously express our desire to change. And if we see someone else doing it, then I think it is right to help. And if we try and we see that they're actively trying and they're facing the mistakes that they're making along the way and learning from them and showing a commitment to applying these lessons in life, then it makes sense to stick it out, to continue helping them. Because if someone is, like I said, actively trying, facing their mistakes, and trying to learn from them, and actually learning from them, and then applying the lessons they're taking from them and showing a commitment to that application, it's hard for me to not see any positive reasoning to stick it out with them and to see how they grow and to continue to try to help them grow. The other side of this is murky for me. It's challenging. It's a bit of a, a whirlwind when trying to really figure it out. And it's not something I would normally say here, but I think it's the right answer 
And oddly enough, the word itself is bringing me to this answer. And that is intuition. I think if we cannot rationally make sense of something and we have to act on it in due time, we should use our intuition, especially in situations like this with other people. And we have so many years of life behind us that can help our intuition. And there are a lot of caveats here, which I'm fully recognizing, which I haven't said about intuition. I mean, people can have very flawed intuitions because of their past experiences, which they didn't choose, which influenced how they process things, the way in which they see the world, which they're not even fully conscious of. Like, that is inevitable. And we do need to be able to take a step back and develop that self-awareness to say, oh, where do these tendencies of thought of reaction come from how have i built my intuition how has my intuition been built where do where does all of this come from there's no perfect answer but at the same time pondering this and at least finding some major themes some major events some major experiences that have taught us and have informed our intuition then we can make sense of it and i think on top of knowing where it comes from knowing what our intuition normally does Where does our intuition normally go? What are the themes? What are the directions in which we find our intuition leading? I think that that is so important to think through and to figure out. And for me, I I really think that it has to inform the answer to this question. You know, if you're with someone and you're really struggling and you're on the fence about what to do, whether to stay, to go how to respond, how to help. Intuition is huge. And I think on top of that, it's seek help. (laughs) Seek help from people who are rational, who can see the situation outside of your emotional view. Seek help from people who can help you to see it objectively. And there's a reason why I'm not saying seek help from a person. I'm saying seek help from people. We cannot just take one perspective especially in critical things like this, in relationships, in love, in deep things that affect us on a daily basis. We need to think through it well and also have enough perspective that is truly informing, that truly helps us to make sense. And having multiple perspectives, multiple rational heads working together with us to help us find truth and find the right way forward, that is much better than just one. And sure, there may be a just one out there which is phenomenal. And that perspective can guide you whenever it happens. But at the same time, you shouldn't just count on that one. You should at least give chance to more perspectives. Take a step back, evaluate everything, and then go from there. And I think that you can combine that approach with your intuition. You can have your intuition, you can have your outside rational opinions. And if one is strong enough, then it will pull you. And then if you're still on the fence, then you're inevitably going to use your intuition. So I think that that properly answers that question. Fifth, bit of a different direction here, but hard-hitting and really important. Is having sex early and frequently in a relationship a bad precedent that could lead to long-term instability and failure? For me, this is something I think about and tend to talk about much more frequently than I anticipate. 
My answer is automatically yes. It could lead to long-term instability and failure. More often than not doing it. Because I think if you have sex early and frequently in a relationship, then the relationship is much more likely to become about the sex. And as much as we don't want to admit it, but is the absolute truth, relationships are not about the sex. They're more than that. Sex is this small, minuscule cherry on top of this brilliant, massive hot fudge sundae. And there's so much of a deeper, bigger foundation under that cherry that number one holds it up and number one gives it a purpose and gives it a reason to be there, gives it a reason of being. Gives it a reason to enhance the Sunday. And if it's not a part of it, then you still have a wonderful relationship, but that cherry makes the Sunday. It makes the Sunday different from just a pile of toppings on top of some ice cream. That cherry makes it the Sunday. It makes it so unique and significant. And that's what sex is in a relationship. It's that additional bonus on top, which enriches and makes it significant. So that's what I mean. Having sex early and frequently can lead to long-term instability and failure. And yes, I recognize there are plenty of relationships which have been successful over time, which start off with a lot of sex and a lot more sex than I would be mentioning here. But nevertheless, I think if we're operating in terms of general principles, in terms of what is the right way to go, I think that the better tendency would be to go with not having sex early and frequently in a relationship because that's not what the relationship is about. Lastly, number six, how does individual vulnerability and self-acceptance on both sides affect the outcome of the relationship in the long term? How long does it take to develop vulnerability and self-acceptance substantially? So, my answer here was that. My feeling is that they both need to be there. So if one side of it does have that individual vulnerability and self-acceptance and the other does not, then the benefits may be lost. But if they are both there, then the conflict resolution within the relationship is much more positive and productive. Nobody gets hurt and offended and working through problems, and problems are inevitable. Bigger problems are, prevent, are prevented because they're discussed earlier. You take more learnings from situation of, of conflict. So I think to have a really, really sound relationship where in the highs and the lows, you have a positive way of operating and success 
that vulnerability and self-acceptance needs to be there on both sides substantially. And I think what I just detailed and all the positive benefits of it make it clear what the long-term outcome is, is that you have a successful relationship that is meaningful, where you're able to work through conflicts, you're able to work together to build a life together that is complementary and that enriches each other. A true companionship that is meaningful. And for the second question of how long does it take to develop vulnerability and self-acceptance substantially, my inclination to answer would be many months to years. You need to be willing to face yourself, to ask the hard questions. And not just the hard questions, but the hard questions that are the right questions. To dive into the deepest levels. And to develop a a greater awareness of the self and the mind. To establish habits that cultivate that vulnerability and self-acceptance consistently. And then additionally, to find friends and community that also cultivate that vulnerability and self-acceptance. And I'm saying that it takes many months to years because it's really hard to just right away be on this path where oh, I have all the situational things around me in my environment that are going to cultivate this. And also, I have all the habits in my own life that are going to help me cultivate this. And I have the right strategies. And I'm willing to dive into these questions, which I've been putting off my whole life beforehand, or I haven't even thought of beforehand. I think accounting for all of that makes many months to years a positive answer that makes sense. And even though it's a long time, that is so marginal, so small, when you consider how long life is and its benefits. It's so meaningful and so important to be able to have that vulnerability and self-acceptance because of how much it can enrich one's life personally And also how much it can enrich the lives of others with whom you interact on a daily basis. And if you're in a relationship for a long time, then that vulnerability and self-acceptance every single day will be the make part of the make or break of a truly meaningful, deeply positive long-term relationship that you cultivate with someone else. And also... Not just the relationship you cultivate with someone else, but the relationship you cultivate with yourself. It's really interesting. There are statistics talking about how people tend to fill the subscriptions of their dogs much more than they fill the subscriptions for themselves. And yes, I know that there are Tons of other covariates, which we're not considering socioeconomic status, access to blah, 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 the ability to have a dog, access to medical care, etc. I understand that. But I think that there is still something to take away from that. And I think it's that we need to treat ourselves as well as we want to treat others optimally. 
And if we want to have a great, great, positive, meaningful, long-term relationship with someone else, then we need to do that for ourselves as well. That's why having those habits to cultivate vulnerability and self-acceptance for oneself, to dive and develop greater awareness of the self and the mind at the deepest levels, to ask oneself the right hard questions, to be willing to face oneself for what we are. These are all common tenets cross-forming relationships with others and with the self. And if we can form that same positive, good-natured relationship with ourselves that we so desperately want to create with others, then good things certainly lie ahead. That's it for me. I hope you like this episode, this new format. It's a bit different for me, but... I really enjoyed recording it, talking through those answers. And I think it helps me to make sense a little bit. And I hope that these answers help you to do the same. I so appreciate you listening, tuning in, especially during this crazy time. Hope you stay well. Hope you're diligent. Hope you're taking great, great, great care during this time. As always, much, much love. And I'll be back soon. Cheers.